Good morning, I'm Robin Shannon, and on today's Fordham Conversations, I'm talking with the NYPD Chief of Department, Terrence Monahan. He's the highest-ranking uniformed officer of the police department. Chief Monahan will take us behind the scenes of the NYPD. We'll discuss gun laws, neighborhood policing, body-worn cameras, and of course, what it was like for the Bronx-raised Fordham alum growing up in New York City. Good morning. Good morning, Rob. I want to start with a simple question. What does it mean to be chief of department? Uh, it's a great uh, it's a great job, probably the greatest job I've ever had. You know, in charge of 36,000 uniformed members, 19,000 civilians in the greatest police department in the world, in what is right now the safest city in uh, in the United States. So it's a it's an honor to have this position. It's an honor to be able to tell the stories of the men and women that are out there each and every day keeping the city safe. And you recently got this promotion, correct? Uh, six months ago, seven months ago now. And how has it been so far? It's, it's been busy. <laughs> it, it, it's quite a hectic schedule, but uh, I love it. I love every day. I love getting to meet the people that I get to meet on a, on a daily basis. And I love interacting with our cops, our detectives, the men and women that are out there every day. They are amazing people in this city. What is a day like in your life? You get up in the morning and you, you know, do you get that call right away? You jump out of bed and you go straight to work with a smile on your face? Or what's it like on a, on a daily, daily daily basis for you? Daily, I get up around 4 o'clock in the morning. Ouch. And uh, the first thing I'm doing is looking through my phone, looking through the emails, looking at everything that occurred the night before, uh, trying to get myself updated on whatever crimes occurred, any violence that may have occurred, get myself ready, and uh, I'm in my car. Driving into work, I'm back in the building by around 6 in the morning, and then I start my day uh, in the building. I try to get a little workout early in the morning if I can, you know, so I'm ready to go through the whole day. So you can stay fit. Stay fit. You got to do something. Got to stay fit. And you're looking, for the, you're looking through the news for crime. For what reason do you have to be? Why? I'm in charge of the department. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, it's, it's important for this agency we have to keep people safe. That's the main focus of what the uh, police departments do is keep people safe. So we want to know what's going on throughout the city, what incidents have occurred, where there may be pockets of violence that we need to address. So it's important that I know it, and then we start getting our resources out there to address whatever's going on. And speaking of community, um, you were involved in actually developing the Neighborhood Police Relations Plan, correct? Is that, am I yes, correct in that? Yes. So can you take me through the tiers of the plan? Like, how did it develop? You know, what was first, second, third, et cetera? All right, this all comes back to 2014. 2014 was probably the toughest year ever in law enforcement. We mm -hmm. had the incident out in Ferguson. We had Eric Garner here in the city, and it, it led to massive protests. You know, late November, there were thousands upon thousands of people out on the street yelling and screaming some of the most uh, horrific things I've ever heard uh, yelled at police officers in our time. This led to the assassination of two of our police officers, Lou and Ramos, uh, December 22nd. It was a dark time for policing. Crime had been going down in the city, but uh, we're not seeing that relationship with the community. The community and us were at odds. Uh, cops' morale was about as low as it had ever been at that point in time. So we needed to make a change. We needed to change the way we policed to go forward, to be able to get out of this abyss that we were in. And that's when we came up with the idea of neighborhood policing. The whole concept of neighborhood policing, and we started it up in four commands. We started up in Washington Heights, in the 3-3 and the 3-4, and out in the Rockaways, in the 101 and the 100. Two completely distinct communities, different ends of the city. So we could kind of test it out and see how it worked. The idea was really to give discretion back into the hands of the cops. 
to put the same cops in the same neighborhood every day they came into work. Too often a cop would come into a precinct, he'd be assigned to one side of the precinct one day, the other side of the precinct the next, and maybe down on a detail in Lower Manhattan the next, Yankee Stadium for uh, a detail after that. He never really got to know the community that he was serving, and the communities never got to know him. So we were able to divide our precincts up and into four sectors and, and give a specific responsibility to police officers to work in those sectors. So steady sector cars that were in there every day they came into work, which gave you a steady cop in that area 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And we also came up with the position of the neighborhood coordination officer. That officer's job was to kind of coordinate everything between the community, the sector cops, the detectives, and be, kind, be that quarterback for you to, kind, to allow things to, uh, to move forward. Once we gave this responsibility, it was important that we gave them that complete discretion. You know, I sit in headquarters. I don't know what's best for Washington Heights sitting in the building, but that cop every single day that's out on that street working hand-in-hand hand with that community he's serving every day, they know what's best. So we allow that cop to make decisions that he can now decide how he needs to resolve an issue, whether it needs to be resolved with an arrest, a summons, or just to fix it. And working hand-in-hand hand with the people that live there, that's how it moves forward. We even now have meetings. It's called Build the Block. So at these meetings, we don't allow bosses to show up. Not a single, yeah, <laughs> it's great. Everyone you like it, come to work, and your boss has never showed up. <laughs> and they get a chance to kind of speak freely. Right. So no bosses are allowed at the meeting. These meetings are run by the cops that patrol that neighborhood, done with the community. So we send out invitations throughout the community. We want people to come in and have that one-to-one -one conversation with the cop. There's actually a website you can go on called buildtheblock.nyc. You put your address in, it's going to tell you when the next meeting with your cop is going to be in your neighborhood. So we encourage people to do that, get to know their cop, get to know him as a human. Uh, it's always been said it's hard to hate up close. So we want the communities to look at the cops as more than just a blue uniform. It's a person, a human. And we also want our cops to look at the communities as good people that are looking to just be able to work, live, worship in, in their neighborhoods in peace. So when we see one another as people, as humans like that, it, it really allows us to move forward and, and try and keep the city safe. Can you describe any particular, or do you have any particular story that you can tell about um, neighborhood policing and how well it worked? I can, give you, like I can give you a couple of good stories. Okay. It's from when it first started and, and progressing through. One of the first ones right in the Rockaways where we knew this was, uh, was going to work. There was a club in the Rockaways that uh, generated noise all the time. Community members would call up on a regular basis, complain about the noise. The cops would come. Sometimes they'd issue summonses. Sometimes they wouldn't. The next day, the community called again. It was an ongoing problem that was never resolved. Once we gave this responsibility to the cops and they knew they had to try and deal with this problem, because if they didn't deal with it today, they were going to be dealing with it again tomorrow because this is their, their area, their neighborhood. So what they decided to do was to get the owners of that club and all the local residents to come together, sit in a room, and have a discussion. Discussion on the issues that the community saw and the issues that the owner of the club saw, how he was able to run his business. And they were able to come to a consensus. 
how loud music could be played, what time the music was going to be shut off, and everyone walked out of there agreeable. And since then, we no longer received calls to that club. So this was resolved without an arrest, without summonses, but by a cop on his own, on his own initiative, looking at a problem and saying, let me get everyone together and see how I can come up with a solution. So that's one example of how uh, the community came together. Um, As you said earlier, there were some high-profile instances of alleged police misconduct that led to mistrust in some of these communities, especially communities of color. So how do you begin to build that trust between the police and the communities? Outside of the, you know, like what are the steps? It's one thing to say we're going to have a police officer walk a beat, but how do you build that trust? It's more than just walking the beat. It's interactions. It's getting to know people. It's getting to see that same face every day. I see you walking to work every day. I'm walking in my beat. I say hello. We start that conversation. It's that first step. You know, and, and we need to be able to reach out, not just to the elderly, which if you go to a community council meeting, it's always just the elderly that would show up to a lot. We need to get to the youth. We need to be able to get to the young kids that are out there. So we have our cops going into the schools. And we pick certain schools with our neighborhood coordination officers. And we go in there with children that were identified by the principal that could use that sort of interaction with the police. And they have a conversation. We call it get it off your chest. So it's where the kids are going to say the bad issues they may have had with police in the past and their negative interactions with them. And the cops saying, well, this is why we do A, B, and C. And it creates that, again, that, that knowledge of one another, seeing you each as a person instead of just a blue uniform. And that's how you start to build this trust. Uh, we need to be transparent as an agency. You know, Incidents happen. We have to be able to stand up in front of a camera as an agency itself and be able to tell you this is what happened, whether we're right, whether we're wrong, or whether we don't know at this point. Just give the facts as we know it as soon as we can. And this is the idea that if we can do this, uh, if we can get more people involved with getting to know their cops and our cops getting to know that community, I want my cops to feel, if crime's up in that neighborhood, that they feel it personally, that they've let people down by not keeping them safe. want that community to look at that cop and say, wow, this guy cares. He's actually coming here. He, He comes into my neighborhood and he wants to do good. He's willing to say hello. He's a he's a regular person that has a job to do in that neighborhood. And I think what you said about transparency is important too. understanding why things, what the process is and why you're making why the NYPD or this particular police officers is making the decisions and the choices that they're making so that we as you know, civilians can say, oh, OK, now I see it's not just you, you know, questioning me because you're 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 bullying me. You're, you actually are just wanting to get to know me a little bit more or know this situation at hand. Exactly. It's exactly it. In addition to neighborhood policing, the NYPD has implemented some new practices or policies, uh, including equipping officers with things like body-worn cameras, uh, and that's expected to be done by the end of the year, I believe, which is, is ahead of schedule. So can you walk me through exactly how these body cameras are supposed to function and how they're supposed to benefit the NYPD and the community? By the end of the year, all of our patrol officers will have the body-worn cameras, and and we've seen great strides and and great results uh, since we just started implementing the program. Uh, You talk about transparency, and we mentioned that before. The transparency that comes from a body camera is fantastic. It lets you see the incident as it unfolds. So our officers have it on. When we have an encounter with anyone, we're going to turn on the body camera. We'll tell you. This, this incident is now going to be recorded. 
which one it, it tends to diffuse situations as you respond as we go up to somebody someone that may be a bit hostile all of a sudden they realize all their actions on ca camera it's going to calm them down by the same token an officer whose hostility may be up in a, in a tense situation realizes that he's just turned on his body camera it's going to bring down his temperature so we're hoping that the body cameras will help diffuse a lot of situations but it also works to the real transparency of incidences. We've had some firearms discharges where our officers have had to fire their weapon, and it's right on camera, and it really gives uh, members of the public an opportunity to see what an officer goes through. There was an is incident up in Washington Heights where uh, our officers respond to a call of a person who's needed medical help. They knock on the door. Door opens, and you see a male standing around 15 feet back from the officers, turn around, and comes at a full charge with two knives in his hands. The officer, in a complete panic, is now backing up as the guy's about to come on him and fires one shot, hitting him in the leg, and he goes down. It was a decision to fire his gun that officer had to make, and you could see it on camera in literally a second. It went from a routine call into a life-and-death situation in a matter of seconds. Another incident... Uh, happened up here in the Bronx, uh, not actually too far from Fordham University, where a officer responds to a location where a guy had just cut two security guards with a knife in a, um, in a facility. The officers come in, and the man has a knife, and there's another man standing close by. At some point, the officers shoot and, and end up killing this man. When we start doing interviews, the man that was standing off to the side says, the officers came in, and fired their gun right away. They didn't give any warnings or anything, which, you know, wow, that seems like uh, a problem. We go back and we look at the video cam from the, from the officers, which shows them coming into the location, and the first officer 21 times on tape, sir, drop the knife, please, dro sir, please drop the knife, please, to the other man, man, please step back, step back. His partner 13 more times, please step back, clear, drop the knife, and then clearly on camera, you see the man start running at the officer with the knife. At that point, they fired. It was able to take an incident that could have stirred controversy in the community. Oh, why did these officers shoot when they didn't have to? Well, now people can see this tape and say, wow, I kind of understand why this incident happened. It takes the he said, she said yeah. sort of out of it. Right, exactly. So um, there have been debate over how much footage should be released. Uh, so how do you determine how much of the footage needs to be released depending on the situation. We want to tell the story, good or bad, we want to release it. Now, it's the police commissioner has the discretion to release. Currently, there's a lawsuit out. Uh, the PBA, the Patrolman's Benevolent Association, was able to go to a judge and get an injunction. So at this point right now, we cannot release any videotape, body-worn camera video, of any of these incidences. We, we, is, we expect fully to win this lawsuit, and hopefully by, uh, by the fall, we'll be able to start releasing incidents again. But currently, we're not able to. But I think it's Why vital. Not? The police union went into a judge, federal judge, and said that it violated their rights releasing this information under what law that's called 50A, which we're not allowed to release anything that may have to do with discipline on an officer. So a judge, while he's reviewing the case, has put a temporary restraining officer or order on us, preventing us from releasing any... Uh, anybody one camera video at this point so to help me understand so is this one case so none of the video can be released yes. or so it's only one case no 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 none it's this is no video at this point in time can based be on one case based on the pba 
going into a lawyer saying that release of videotape violates their rights. And why would that why would that be the case? Under civil service law, there is a a law called 50A which says that they, you cannot release anything that could possibly deal with discipline of an officer or their disciplinary history. Uh, it can't be released to the media. So at that point, we're, we're confident that our lawyers are going to win this lawsuit. But at this point in time, we can't release the videos. I guess I'm trying to say I don't understand why it is um, that the officers' union, is yes, it, that's the union. wouldn't want the footage released. I guess they're afraid that at some point in time there's going to be a footage that's going to show a negative encounter. Hmm. They want no footage released because they can't say, well, just release the good footage and not the bad footage. We're going to release anything. No, good or bad, that video will make it out. That's our position. We want to make it out so we can be as transparent as possible. Gotcha. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon talking with the NYPD Chief of Department, Terrence Monahan. He's the highest ranking uniform officer of the New York City Police Department. And I want to switch gears here and talk a little bit about a hot button issue right now gun laws. And there's legislation before Congress uh, that would allow gun owners to carry weapons across state lines. So if passed, what effect would this have on public safety here in New York City? The Gun Reciprocity Act would probably be one of the worst things that could ever occur in the city. It's important for everyone. Uh, I know you have a lot of minds here at Fordham University. Anyone with a mind, this is not something that's good. It's not good for the country. It's definitely not good for New York City. Anyone can go to the least restrictive state, get a gun license, and carry it here in New York City with, with, no, uh, with no restrictions. You know, this is something, you know, those that do illegal things know the way around the laws. Uh, it's something that a gang member could very easily get a person who can go down to uh, the South, legally buy a bunch of guns, and be what we would call the legal holster. So you could have five gang members in a car with one person who's legally went down south and got a license and could be sitting there with a bag of guns in the car. She's got them all. There's nothing we'd be able to do as a police department. We don't need more guns in the city. We have, like I said earlier, the numbers of shootings that we've reduced. The last thing we need is to bring more guns into this city and allow people to take the law in their own hands. Now, proponents of of this um, law say, well, if I have family who have a gun legally, let's say, in Georgia, and my family member has their gun, they're used to it, the South has different rules, and my family member who has a legal gun wants to drive and visit me in New York um, and has to travel through all these different states, um, should they have to look up all the different laws in all the different states in order to just drive here to New York to visit me and have their gun on them? They should leave their gun in Georgia. Because I don't <laughs> That's need, the answer. I don't need Georgia's laws coming up here to New York City and bringing their guns to New York City so I can allow those who have nefarious activities on their mind coming up with guns. Gotcha. So, uh, Chief Monahan, recently a young boy uh, was killed not too far from here uh, with a machete by an alleged gang. What role did social media play in that investigation? That was a, it was a very horrific crime. Uh, if we saw it, the video was out there. A young man dragged out of a bodega 
12 people set upon him, attacked him with knives, machetes. Uh, we needed to solve this quick. There was great video, and we needed to identify these people. So we went on social media. Uh, I, I did it off of my Twitter account, uh, NYPD Chief of Department. Go on there, and you could log on, and we put out the video clips. The Chief of Detectives put it out. We put it out on Crime Stoppers, and the phone calls came in. People were calling us left and right with tips on who they were. They helped us identify 12 individuals involved in this attack. We were able to get the community's help to solve this crime. Everyone poured in responses off of social media. We were able to lock up 12 people, and they were all indicted by the Bronx for this, for this homicide, conspiracy to commit it and to commit it. So without the community's input, without us reaching out to the vast communities, uh, we may not have been able to identify everyone involved in this crime. How does the NYPD use social media, not just in this case, but how would you suggest we, as you know, civilians, use, use social media when connecting with officers of the NYPD? We're out there. Every, every precinct will have a Facebook page and it's going to have a social media connection. It's going to have a Twitter account. Uh, I have one myself, uh, a Twitter account. Chief Detectives have it, and it's how we're getting information out to the community. So localize right into your local precinct. You could just go onto our web page. You go onto uh, the precinct site. They'll tell you what their Facebook page is. They'll tell you what their Twitter account is. It gives information. Let lets you know what's going on. Let lets you know if there's a crime that's occurred. If there's video out there of someone that did a crime within your neighborhood, gives you the opportunity to see it, and then anonymously you can call into our tips hotline, Crime Stoppers, and get that information out so our detectives can help solve these crimes. It's a great interactive tool. Listen, people watch TV, they listen to uh, the radio, hopefully they listen to your station a lot, but social media reaches millions. If you look around nowadays, kids, everyone's on their phone, everyone's interacting on Facebook and Twitter. This is how we reach, especially this younger millennial generation, is getting through social media, getting our message across to them on what's going on in the city. Okay. You grew up in the Bronx. Um, and where specifically in the Bronx? Grew up in Parkchester. In Just, Parkchester. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and you come from a long line of officers. Was that one of the reasons why you decided to go into law enforcement? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> My grandfather uh, came on the police department, New York City Police Department, in 1927. My father came on in 1946. My brother came on in 1971. It's just that long generation. I guess I hit the, the idea, the old Irish guy, Irish cop family. <laughs> so it's been something I always wanted to do. Uh, and when I could, I came on at the age of 20. At the age of 20. Yeah. So um, what was it like growing up in Parkchester when great. you were young? I love growing up in Parkchester. It was great to be able to walk out of my house. There'd be 30 kids running around. Uh, friendships that I, I had back when I was a 10-year-old, I have today as a 57-year-old. Now, was there anything that you can admit to whoa, that whoa. you did? <laughs> Wait, this is all recorded, right? <laughs> back then, as a kid, statute of limitations is over, um, that might have leaned towards maybe, I don't want to say illegal activity, but questionable activity when you were growing up. I don't want to go to. There, there may have been, you know, a couple of days of having a beer or two behind the ball field in uh, in Parkchester with, with a group of friends, but uh, I guess we'll leave it at at, at that at this point. There's something <laughs> nice and safe. Okay. Um, has your approach uh, towards policing changed uh, over the years since you've been serving? Absolutely. Listen, as time comes, we we see how we approach. This is a, a different city. How we had to police this city back in the '80s with the violence that was going on. 
is a world of difference in how we have to police it today. Can you describe what it was like for, in the 80s? In the, the 80s, there was people being shot on a regular basis. It, it wasn't unusual to be driving down the street and, and hearing gunfire on a regular basis. People walking up to you numerous times a day, shot. You know, we're talking about a city was having over 5,000 shootings a year. Now it's not as common occurrence. You know, it, now uh, in a shooting, you're going to see captains showing up, sometimes chiefs showing up to the scene of a shooting to try and resolve it. Back in the 80s, you were lucky if you had a sergeant show up. Why? It was just so commonplace. It wasn't considered an unusual occurrence. Mm. Someone being shot, it, it was, all right, we'll move on to the next thing. We now do so much investigation. Our detectives, and detectives in New York City are, are the greatest in the world. We're solving these shootings. You know, you, you're going to pull out a gun and you're going to shoot somebody. Our detectives are going to catch you. And they're going to hunt you down and we're going to put you in jail and work with our prosecutors. In the 80s, it was tougher. There were, it was just so many. You know, a detective would have to cover 10, 15 shooting cases that he'd try and investigate. Now, we're lucky if our detectives only have to cover two or three that they're doing an investigation on. They can really focus their energies on resolving these issues and getting these people in jail. And how has that change changed you and your thinking or helped evolve you in your thinking and the way you think about crime and, and, and the streets in New York City? Uh, again, as I, as I went through this department, you really get to work with community members. I was a CEO to 4-6, and I made great friends with people in the community. Luella Hatch, who, who recently died, I was at her funeral. Who is she? She was a community council president in the 4-6 precinct. Wonderful woman. She was the mayor of T-Bout Avenue. <laughs> so she, she was someone I really got to know. And, and you realize how, how important they are to the community and how much of a difference they can make. And that we're not here to just come in with an iron hand and, and rule. We're part of that community. And, and you got to see that as I moved uh, through the department, as you move up in the department that we don't go anywhere if we're not working hand-in-hand with the people we serve. This can never be an us-versus-them sort of mentality. It has to be us working together against that small percentage that uh, commits crime. And uh, you also are a uh, Fordham alum. What kind of activities were you involved with at Fordham? Uh, It was a tough time back then. (laughs) I was working full-time, coming to Fordham University. Uh, I used to ride my bike here every day from Parkchester and ride back to a hardware store that I used to work at. So it was uh, two and a half years I came right here to Rose Hill Campus, uh, and that's when I became a police officer. And I went through the police academy, but I knew I wanted my Fordham, uh, my Fordham degree. So I used to, uh, I was working in Hunts Point, a 4-1 precinct, doing late tours. And I used to ride the train after a late tour down to Lincoln Center, because I had to finish at Lincoln Center, mm-hmm. the way the, uh, the credits worked. And it took me three years going part-time at Lincoln Center, but proudest day of my life in 1985 is when I walked out with that Fordham degree. And it, it really helped me. It helped me get to where, where I am today. And uh, you don't, most police officers, though, you don't have to have a degree. So why Fordham? <clears throat> why Fordham? <laughs> Interesting. Now, my father used to take me all the time as a kid right across the street over here to Bronx Park. And we'd walk around the park, and on the crest of a hill, You'd be able to look over, and you'd always see Fordham University there. So I remember as little as five years old telling my father, I'm going to go to Fordham University. I'm going to go to Fordham University. So it was always my mission to go there. I went to St. Raymond's High School, uh, Christian Brother School. Brother Andrew was the principal back then. 
And he was quite upset that I came to Fordham and didn't go to Manhattan College, which were the Christian <laughs> brothers, and I was coming to a Jesuit school. How dare you? How dare I? Exactly. <laughs> but this, uh, it's a school I always wanted to go to. Uh, proudest day of my life, accepted, came here, and then to get that diploma, it was a great feeling. And I, like I said, uh, the education I received here really helped me through all the promotional exams and helped me in just my decision-making as I've gone through my career and led me to where I am right now. Um, now I have a, a couple of questions for a real New Yorker, okay? Yankees or Mets, we sort of talked about this already. <laughs> this is not even a choice. That's a fault. I'm a Bronx kid, born and raised in the Bronx. You know, the Yankees, 100% the Yankees. Okay. 20, what, 26 world championships? This isn't even a competition. <laughs> pizza, fork, no fork. Who would use a fork on a pizza? <laughs> no fork. No fork. No fork. Best place to get a slice? Uh, used to be Roma's on uh, Castle Hill Avenue or Valari's. There were two pizzerias on the corner of Castle Hill and Westchester. I don't think they're there anymore, but those were the best pizzas I ever had in my life. Yeah. <laughs> what kind did you used to get? Oh, just a regular, regular slice. None regular of that Sicilian stuff. <laughs> um, and being an officer obviously can be be pretty stressful. Where is your Zen place? You know that piece of that place of peacefulness. <laughs> when I'm with my family, yeah, spending time with the family, with the kids. You have three kids. Do I have three kids. Mm -hmm. You know, I used to love uh, going. My kids played hockey. I used to love just sit there watching a hockey game. And that was my, in the ice rink. I could just sit back, relax, and watch them. It, it was very enjoyable. Yeah. Any of them going into police force? No. It, no. Ends, it ends with me. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I want to thank you so much, NYPD Chief of Department Terrence Monahan. Thank you for coming in. Thank you, Robin. Thank you for having me. And I'd also like to thank my senior producer, Marina Koff. There's a holdup in the Bronx. Brooklyn's broken out in fights. There's a traffic jam in Harlem that's backed up to Jackson Heights. There's a scout troop short a child. Khrushchev's do it, I know wild. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon.